This episode is brought to you by Thorn, the industry leader in nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is actually trusted by eight U.S. national teams and championship teams in the NFL, NBA, and Major League, as well as recently becoming the official sports performance nutrition partner of the UFC. So when it comes to supplements... The tactical athlete space and the athletic space need two things. We need efficacy, meaning the products do what they say they're going to do on the label. And then we need to trust the fact that we are not going to fail either athletic drug tests or work-related drug tests. Now, Thorne has actually been around since the 1980s, where they were used by physicians and hospitals for nutritional supplements for the patients. They were so successful that athletic teams and even special operations teams reached out to them and they started supplying them as well. Very recently, they actually opened their doors to the general public. Now, what sets Thorne apart is they manufacture their own products in a state-of-the-art NSF-certified facility in South Carolina. They use only the purest possible ingredients formulated with no stearates or arbitrary fillers in the cleanest manufacturing process. Most of you listening come from a profession where it can take its toll physically and mentally, and many of us are not able to bolster our nutrition purely with the food that we eat. And that's where supplementation comes in. So if you're ready to maximize your health and performance, visit thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Take a short product quiz to be paired up with the perfect health and fitness supplements. And for you, the audience, if you use the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, BTS10, you will get 10% off your first order. And if you want to learn even more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of Behind the Shield podcast and you will hear my interview with Wes Barnett and Joel Totoro from Thorn. This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 5.11 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 5.11tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, 
you will get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. Welcome to episode 545 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Joe Lowry. Now, Joe was working as a Green Beret when he was shot in the head by Taliban insurgents, sustaining an extreme TBI. So we discuss a host of topics from his journey into the military, his physical and mental road to recovery, the incredible nonprofit he started, and so much more. Before we get to this incredibly powerful conversation, as I say every single week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, making it easier and easier for others to find. And this is a free library for you, planet Earth. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to everyone else who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you, Joe Lowry. Enjoy. Well, Joe, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time to come on the Behind the Shield podcast today. Oh, you're very welcome. So where are we finding you on planet Earth today? Well, I currently live in Ontario, California, which is Southern California. I always have to explain to people, I'm like, Ontario, Canada, much warmer weather here. And like I was saying in, in our little test shot there that I was enjoying the cold Southern California a cool 58 degree wet sunny morning outside this morning so yeah i'm in southern california right next to the ontario international airport which is one of the major airports in southern california it's actually competing with lax now oh really yeah for international status because it, it's a big funding thing for the cities from what i understand i mean that's not my expertise but i just overheard a conversation about it and was like oh wow but yeah, we're, a, I mean, literally a stone throw away from the airport. I live across I-10 and the other side, the northern side of the I-10 and the airport is on the southern side. Yeah, I lived in uh, Burbank for a little while and um, Burbank has an airport too. And it was... Oh yeah, the Burbank airport. Yeah. Yep. yeah, it was right on Hollywood Way. So when you think about, you know, movies when someone moves to LA and they live in a tiny little shoebox and... You know, the planes are almost hitting the roof of their house. That's exactly <laughs> my moving to yeah. LA experience. That's it. Yep. La la land. Yes, indeed. So I know that you I were. <laughs> well, I know you were born in that area. So let's start at the I very was born beginning. In Long Beach, California. Yes. The so... is always like the joke, and we say we're Snoop Dogg and the blind <laughs> from. Sipping gin and juice. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> So let's talk about that. So tell me um, about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Well, I grew up in a very large family, I would consider, with four of us and very economically struggling. My dad was a self-employed contractor 
that he would do his work in Southern California. Like he started up his own business and just kind of went from there. He was uh, an entrepreneur in that manner doing ca- home carpentry and stuff like little, little jobs for like, he started off with people he knew in um, one of the cities here in Southern California, but anyhow, so yeah, he, he did that and was earning his living that way. And then we had, I have the one half brother and then one full brother and then my sister. So actually I would make four. I had to walk myself through that one. Sorry, TBI. Yeah, no, don't apologize. We'll get into that story later. That's what, put me in this position but yeah so I I came from Long Beach California and was born and raised there in 1984 and grew up in the 90s during the riots in LA and experienced that whole thing I always love telling this story about I know it's kind of a touchy subject but I was growing up in a very colorful neighborhood and I, I was like, I remember asking my mom during that time in the 90s, why is so-and-so not at school? Because, the, you know, as a kid, you don't know what the hell's going on. But she's like, it was a racial thing. And I was like, I didn't understand it at the time. But yeah, I was like, why is my good friend not at school? And it was just a weird time to grow up in the 90s with the riots. And I, I'm sure you're familiar, you know, remember the OJ trial. I don't know how old you are, but I'm like, that was a big deal. And I just remember like all my favorite cartoons and shows were shut down and it was all like that white Bronco cruising around on the freeway. And I was so pissed off about it. It's like, why is my cartoon not on? Why is this dude driving so slowly? (laughs) I didn't have cable television. It was just the basic. So what was that like then? So so you talk about the LBC. I grew up on a farm in England. I loved hip hop when I was a, a teenager. So I had I used to train to Dr. Dre's album and you know Doggy Style, Snoop's first one. Um, you know, so from an English farm boy, obviously I think, well, Long Beach is you know full of gangsters and it's all about you know like I said, gin and juice and yeah, drive-bys and bitches. <laughs> but, so give me give me your perspective of what your life was actually like. You know, your childhood in the LBC. Well, it was weird in that way. I mean, there was drama, of course, growing up in the 90s. And I got involved. I'm very fortunate that I joined the military because as an adolescent teen, my family was going through a bad, my mom and dad went through a bad divorce. My dad was, he's passed away, but he had an alcohol problem and was very abusive. And it was a very challenging childhood, I would say that. But it developed me to who I am, the man I am today, you know, and that those challenges. but. Like a lot of folks, I had a poor exa- father, exa- you know, example of a father, and I had to learn that one on my own. But he did, I would, you know, I love to praise him for this. He showed me because I would go to work with him as his little gopher, as they say, meaning basically he would say, Hey, go get this for me off the truck, like a tool or something. I'd run and grab it and bring it back to him. And he paid me, and it developed my sense of like responsibility and earning you know, money and stuff like that. As if I do this, I can earn 20 bucks, which was a lot at that time for a day's work. And then I'd go spend it at the local 7-Eleven on Slurpees and candy bars and shit. <laughs> but, you know, I had to learn. And surprisingly, as a Southern California boy, I actually got into hockey and loved it. And it took a hold of me and I loved the game. And I grew up playing roller hockey on the beach there. and. Uh, 
in Long Beach, uh, what the hell they call the neighborhood, but it's Belmont Shore. They have a outdoor roller hockey rink that we play hockey, and I picked up the the sport, and I got really into it, and that grew into a very big love for the game. And actually, my whole right arm is tattooed up with LA Kings stuff, and I see when that. Hurt, won the cup i was like my tattoo makes sense i was in afghanistan in that that year 2012 when they wanted their first cup i was like now my my tattoo makes sense <laughs> That's i a- actually showed luke robitaille when i was there uh, la- uh 2019 for like hero of the game they honored me and had me out at center ice and everything i showed him and he loved it he loved that story i was like yeah i have this tattoo before you guys won the cup i was like i'm just dedicated yeah, no, absolutely. When I when I went to Anaheim, I worked for their fire department, Anaheim Fire, and the Ducks had just won the Stanley Cup that yeah. year, so there was a huge oh, man yeah. pride in that city. Yeah, that's a rival team. <laughs> yes, <laughs> not a fan, but I, they're you know a Southern California team, so I appreciate that. You know, and it it made hockey big here when that both of the teams won the cup. It was like it brought. There's folks that would never even know what hockey is here in Southern California, like myself, including Gret. I would give Gretzky probably the majority of the credit for bringing hockey to Southern California. But yeah, that's, so I grew up with that, and that was kind of that kept me out of trouble. But I was a troubled youth with my family going through their issue, marital issues, and that my family, my parents splitting up, and. Uh, of course, because my mom was very motherly. I lived with her and my other siblings. A very struggled life when they split up my parents. And was my mom was, you know, she was a whole, uh, housewife and she didn't work. So she kind of had to take on like a, get a job and everything after that split up. And my dad was not doing very well with uh, paying child support. So we struggled to put it simply. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's so, it's crazy because it's unique now when I do an interview and someone tells me how great their childhood was. That, that's a, that's a, a rarity now. And so I don't think most of us walking around realize that most people had an element of trauma when they were young. And what's really, really not discussed is if that trauma is not addressed before you put the uniform on, you're walking into the profession as a Green Beret or a firefighter with a certain level already before you even see and do some of the things you have to in your profession. Right. Definitely. Yeah. That, that makes sense thinking about that from that perspective. And, but you know, with the special forces during, during our assessment or evaluation time, they do a psychological screening on the candidates. So, but they don't dig into it that well. So I'm like, I'm sure there is, you know, and I know myself, well enough now after doing a lot of therapy and figure these things out and especially through my word and reading the scriptures and getting into my my faith very deeply which we can talk about that if you'd like or not i don't you know i don't know what your leanings are on that kind of stuff some people are very that's taboo but i'm like i spill my jesus wherever i go so <laughs> you can spill away so staying on that topic um when you were a young man, when you were still in high school age, were you deeply spiritual back then? No, actually, the funny, ironic, the irony behind it is I grew up, my mom had us as JWs, Jehovah Witnesses. So I grew up with that crazy 
no offense to anybody out there that's Jehovah Witness, but I grew up with it and I didn't celebrate Christmas until like I was 12 years old or birthdays. And then we, you know, changed and turned to Christianity because my mom was trying to figure things out. She was moved from, she grew up in New York and was moved. I always jokingly consider my mom a hippie, her generation. She moved out to Cal- Southern California with my dad and then they had us and she was trying to figure her life out, you know, and she was reaching out to churches and somewhere to feel at home and came across the Jehovah Witnesses and got involved in that. And I didn't really understand it. I was just a kid and I was like, oh God, I got to do this. I got to get dressed up and go door to door. And I had to do the whole knocking door to door and trying to sell it. You know, you've seen them come to your doors, I'm sure. Oh, I've had them. I've actually, it's funny. I've, I've, I remember clearing out my garage one time. I don't know if I told this story before, but at the time I was, I had my head shaved because it was, you know, I shaved it for the Fire Academy and just kept shaving it. It was so much cheaper. Um, and I'm playing some obnoxious hip hop, probably something like Snoop. <laughs> well, I'm clearing it out and these two people came up and I think they were Jehovah's Witnesses. And again, I, I think anyone whose core of their spiritual philosophy is love, kindness and compassion, I'm all for you, whatever, whatever that doctrine is. But they came and they started trying to, to preach to me. And I was like, well, let me ask you something. What's your stance on homosexuality? And they were like, it's an abomination. And I was like, all right, well, then can you get the fuck off my driveway? Because that's not kindness, compassion, and love that I subscribe to. So whatever your your background is, it's not for me. And so the, the fact that this shirtless skinhead told him to get off <laughs> off his driveway because uh, they weren't pro-gay, um, you know. And, you know, ev- everyone is entitled to their own opinion, but you're coming and thrusting yours on mine. So that's a big difference. Right. No, that, that makes sense. So. And that's a very complex topic. I'm sure we don't need to get into that one. But I'm like, I dug into it myself because I was curious as a Catholic. I was like, where does the church stand on that? And my wife had the most profound statement ever because my sister ascribes to that, you know, lifestyle or however. I don't know what the proper terminology is. But so she's like, she had this saying or a a quote. I'll try to paraphrase it here. But basically it it goes, love the sin or not the sin. And I, that just spoke to me. I was like, that makes sense to me. Cause you know, we don't agree with what they do, but you know, it doesn't mean they need to be oppressed on us. But if you can't go wrong, like you said, with love, anything that's based in love. And that's how I define the Bible. I mean, it's more complex than that. But if you just root everything in love, easier said than done, as I like to have been known to say quite frequently. Yeah. No, I agree 100%. I think that's what it boils down to. I love my favorite phrase is don't be a dick. That's pretty much the, the nucleus of my whole <laughs> existence. <pretty> simple. <laughs> um, what about, again... Harder to follow, though, probably. It, it is, it is. And it, it takes self-regulation and self-assessment and humility and all these things that we have to work on every single day. Um, what were you dreaming of becoming when you were high school age? Were you always thinking about the military? Or was there something else? No, honestly, no. I wanted to play hockey. I was... I wanted to be a professional NFL or not NHL hockey player. I was like, that's all I wanted to do with my life. And of course, that's a very slim chance, you know, especially as a boy from Southern California, but uh, that's what I wanted to do. And, you know, but then to jump ahead a little bit, I was in high school when 9-11 happened, the events of 9-11 and uh, the recruiters flooded the campuses and I wasn't going anywhere with my life. So you know that that pipe dream of becoming a NHL hockey goalie was not happening, but 
the recruiter was like, oh, you know, we'll, we'll pay for your college and this and that. And I was like, okay, yeah. So I got signed up and I was like, I had just seen, recently seen the movie Black Hawk Down. I was like, I want to be an army ranger. And he has me go take the ASVAB, which is or the, you know, the ASVAB, which is the, the test at the military aptitude test. And I, so he had all my scores. And when I told him I wanted to be a damn ranger, 11 Bravo, an infantry man, he's like, what is wrong with you? <laughs> Why would you want to do that with these scores? You could be anything you want in the army. I was like, because I want to be a ranger. But anyhow, that's, uh, needless to say, that never ended up happening. I spent quite a few years. So I went to basic training at Fort Benning, Georgia, which was a complete culture shock as a, from, a, from a boy from Southern California's perspective and show up in, which uh, Fort Benning is in Southern Georgia. So I show up there and I'm just like in cultural shock and basic training there get you off the buses and it's all blacked out. So you can't see anything going in to get off and you're just getting shouted at by drill sergeants and they're right in your face. And I'm like, whoa, I had long hair. Like I was a, I grew up in high school. I became into the goth scene as they call it and was all into the black hair. I had my hair dyed black, I think at the time. And that, that I was just a target for the drill instructors. They were just after me, right on me. They're like, look at this guy over here and of course because they shave your head back then that, i mean that was the way they did it and it was like i was a tar i was targeted i go through training there and it was a culture shock like i said and so rewind a little bit there so i met my wife before i while i was depth or delayed entry waiting on a basic training date to go to the military basic training and her and I, my recruiter was like, are you guys serious? Like with your relationship? And I was like, we're like, yeah, we're pretty serious. And he's like, I would recommend you guys get a marriage certificate, either go off to Vegas, being where we live in Southern California and get married. And then when he leaves for basic training, you will get paid way more because they'll pay you as a military, you know, your basic housing allowance. So we did that. It was, we went and got Elvis to marry us in Vegas and it was pretty cool. and. We came came back six or eight years later and got married in the church. But, you know, needless to say, we got that marriage certificate for the military and I left for the army. And once I graduated basic training, I flew back out to Southern California to do what they call a ditty move or do it yourself move. Meaning I rent a U-Haul truck and load up all of our stuff and we drove across country, my wife and I. This was prior to us having any kids. I have four now. And uh, we're actually on our way there because so I, my first duty station ended up being Washington, D.C. Because while I was in basic training, the uh, third infantry, the old guard or the honor guard based out of Washington, D.C., their recruiters came to the infantrymen area and they asked me if I wanted to sign up to become and they're like the way they promoted it to me or got me they were like would you rather be stationed and living with your wife in DC or in Georgia and I was like because if I was going to become a ranger that's where I would be stationed is Georgia and I was like oh DC sounds better especially the way they sold it they were telling me like you'll have the monuments and stuff like that to visit being a Southern California guy you know I was like yeah that sounds a lot better than the country of Georgia. So I signed up and 
end up getting my first duty assignment as third infantry, the old guard, which, which is in Alexandria, Arlington, Virginia, DC metropolitan area. So I get assigned up there. And like I said, I flew back to Long Beach or LAX and picked up my wife and we rented a U-Haul truck and, or a budget truck and drove, started heading out. Meanwhile, I'm getting paid by the army this whole time to do the move. So it was not like a bad deal, but you know, it was a bit of work and, but it was an adventure as we saw it as two young, young people. And we get in the U-Haul truck, a budget truck, and start heading out and making the cruise from California to Washington, D.C. on the I-10. And uh, actually, I end up getting in an accident on the, in Texas, hitting black ice, a really bad accident, and flipped the truck over, which destroyed all of our furniture. The little bit of furniture this young couple we, we had at the time, and quite a start to our journey. It's amazing. Well, with your journey, obviously, you know, there's, there's ranger training, there's, you know, the, the Green Beret selection. So walk me through that. And when you look back, what were the physical and or mental attributes that got you through when so many people didn't, so many people rang the bell? Well, there's a lot in between there, but I'll go, I'll try to come up with a quick synopsis, but Basically, so I spent about roughly eight, I was a staff sergeant by the time I went to SFAS, which is the Special Forces Assessment and Selection. So I was well established in my career already, but I was at a low point. I was drinking too much and my wife was like threatening to leave me and stuff because I was an alcoholic, just to be frank. I mean, I was drinking on a Monday, you know, I was like, the bottle. I thought I was going to find my answer in the bottom of a bottle. And I had a platoon sergeant at the time that said something to me one morning when I come, it came in hung over for PT. He's like, is that what you're going to do with your life? And I really like, it hit me hard. I was like, is it? But it took a little while. And then I went to Colorado and met an army or a special forces a recruiter is what they're called. And the idea kind of went off in my head. I once I got sober and was like, fuck, if I'm going to deploy and serve and be in harm's way, I'm going to be with the best of the best. So I was like, let me, let me give this a shot. And I was a PT, as they call it, physical training stud. I loved it. I loved working out and exercising and running. Uh, I was running. <laughs> like Forrest Gump. Have you caught that or not? Yeah, I did. <laughs> One of my favorite movies <laughs> as a child. But yeah, so I, I was really into PT and doing stuff like that. So I was like, they were telling me a little bit about it. And they're like, so they'll do a, they do this screening process and my aptitude scores were all right there. So they were like, okay. And they signed me up to send Cause at this point in time, my career, I was at Colorado. Lovely. One of the best bases in the army or forts, I should say, Fort Carson, Colorado. And I was like, man, who do I, you know, if I'm going to go serve, cause I hadn't been deployed yet, but I was like, if I'm going to go serve and, you know, cause as a staff sergeant, that's pretty bad to not have a and you know it's a measuring thing i was like when my uniform I wouldn't have a combat patch on so guys to be completely honest I, I felt like a shit bag you know i didn't have one as a staff surgeon here i am trying to lead troops that have deployment patches and i'm like who am i to say you know what you you know how you, your barracks room should look you don't even have a combat patch sergeant and i'm like okay yeah so i need to get my butt over there 
So like I said, I, and then I, you know, go to special forces assessment and selection, which they, and they have national geographic shows on it. Uh, the, um, three weeks in hell or whatever that are shows that they've done on the training program, but essentially it just kicks your butt and they take you and guys that are on active duty and they assess you whether you're going to, you know, meet through. So they put you through the rigor of tests and things like that after two tests, physical and mental and sleep deprivation. And they kind of just see who's going to make, make the cut in the process. And that's actually where I met my business partner, Steve, who I think was the one that reached out to you. And yes. So him and I met there in 2010, I believe it was somewhere around two thousand. He, he knows the dates better than I, but anyhow, we met there and, became good friends ever since we lived ended up living together as roommates and long story short but we uh became brothers from that point on you know and he always tells me this funny story he's like joe we're in this damn freaking court crazy training course and most you know Hollywood films will show you like a guy pulling out a picture of his kids because I had a couple kids at that time point in time I think I had two and he's like, can you pull out a picture of your dog, Izzy? <laughs> and he just yeah, cracks him up. He's like, you pulled out a picture of your dog. <laughs> well, speaking, speaking of that, so again, like you said, you're a PT stud. You know, there, I hear about you know, the land nav courses and suit deprivation and, you know, um, barely having any food. And, you know, the, it seems to be extremely grueling, whether it's buds, whether it's green beret selection, whether it's the PJs. Um, and so many people tell me, yes, physical preparation is a part of it, but really it's the mental side. So what was it, you know, with all those years leading up to that, including many, many years, as you said, not being deployed, what gave you the mindset to pass when, when others didn't? Um, well, you know, my wife will put it this way. She's like, when you, she said this to me just recently, actually, we had this conversation. She's like, Joe, if you said you wanted to be the, because I just told her I wanted to become a Catholic priest. I was like, I, you know, I, when I want to do, she's like, when you want to do something, you do it. She's like, if you, I always, and she, this is her word. She's like, if Joe wants to do something, if he wanted to be the president of the United States, he would become that. If you put your mind to something, you, you do it. So she's like, I believe anything you say in that manner. So I guess that's the only way I think I could think of when you asked me that question. I was like, I don't know how to cultivate that. It's just something that comes natural for me. Or as she jokingly said, after I emerged from my coma, I'm hard headed. And, you know, that kept her from being a widow of four, obviously. Yeah. I mean, you know, physically and metaphorically, huh? Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> well, so one thing I love to ask everyone who has been deployed, as I mentioned before, we get a very polarizing view on the television of war, you know, very pro or very anti, as I say, you know, there are a bunch of baby killers or kill them all, let God sort them out. What I love is that when I have people come on the show, they talk about their experiences, what they saw with their two eyeballs. So the f- first of, of two parts of this question um, was there a point when you found yourself deployed in a combat zone where regardless of the politics that sent you to that place, you saw that there were atrocities, you know, happening, whether it's to the, to the soldiers, to the, the native people that, you know, made you realize that there was some, some bad people that need to be taken care of? 
Yes. One comes directly to mind with that question is when I was there in 2010, I believe somewhere around there, probably not so important to get stuck on stupid on the damn exact time frame. But my first deployment there, we were doing what we call at the time was called the VSO mission, which was village stability operations, basically meant we lived in the village with the villagers as special forces soldiers. So there's pictures of me with a beard and everything wearing Afghani garb. And so this mission was exactly what the Green Beret was designed to do. So there's a quote that goes like this, not to get off topic here, but basically it says, why send our young men to die for another country when we can send trained guys like the Green Berets to train up other, the country that were in question to defend them, die in defense of their country which makes total sense if you think about it. But there was an incident with a village elder when in whatever year it was when Obama first got elected. This man was crying to me. He's like, you guys are going to leave because you're the politics. He's like, and we're going to get, everybody's going to get killed. Essentially, that was what the interpreter kind of told me. He was saying, because they all speak Pashtun and I only know a few words in Pashtun. And I was just blown away. It really brought me to like, gut-wrenching is the only way I can really describe it. I felt so bad because it's like, yeah, I can't do anything about this. But, you know, I want to because it sucks. I mean, if you the only best way I can describe Afghanistan to people is if you watch a biblical movie, that's the time frame there and except that everybody has a damn flip phone and a generator. But yeah, it's basically mud huts. They call them kalats that they live in and no running water or utilities. But yeah, so that was the most profound one that hit me hard while I was there. Because I was like, I was playing soccer, football, whatever you call it, with the kid, little kids, and they loved it, you know. And that's what we do. We get in the villages and make that, you know, because they won't mess with you, the Taliban, if you're, you have like kids, because they don't want to be demonized by the local population. So they, they won't shoot at you if you've got a bunch of kids and stuff around you. So we would, we were, you know, tactically, we would think, oh, we just keep kids around, you know, that sounds bad, but you know, that was a strategy that we would use an operational trait, you know, and it just, it meant a lot to me, you know, we've seen those kids and like help benefit and getting them clothing and stuff like that. Cause they don't have that kind of stuff like we do. And I try to explain to my kids when they're complaining about simple little things, I'm like, you don't even know. But I'm like, just that I'm very grateful I've got to see that because it gives me a better appreciation for this country and wh- where we're living at and not third world, you know, or whatever you want to call it. But basically, damn stone ages where they're at and the poverty levels are just it's so great. It's not even. And it's sad. Then when you go to places like I was in Malibu uh, back in September for a fundraiser and I was like seeing all these beautiful mansions. I was like, not even, you don't have to go that far. You just go to dan- from Malibu to downtown LA, the vast difference in economy. You know, I'm like, it just blows my mind that we as humans can't get past that and, you know, pick each other up. Because I was just reading or listening to something about how we're all interconnected. And that was kind of like touching to me. I'm in no way shape or form a socialist, but I do not like the fact of seeing brothers and sisters suffering and conditioned when there's no reason for that, you know? 
we have the movies to take care of each other, but sorry, I kind of went off on a tangent. No, there. no, it was a beautiful, like I said, I love tangents and it was beautiful. I just actually had um, a Navy SEAL on the show, Drago, who is from Poland. And so he talked about actual socialism, you know, and it's sad because they use that term over here almost in the place of altruism, I think, you know, I think a lot of us, when we think of social, you know, social kind of, um, you know, ideas is like healthcare for everyone. And like you said, you know, not spreading the wealth out so everyone's exactly even, but if you're affluent and, you know, you maybe are wasting a whole load of money on frothy coffees that maybe you want to think about reaching out and helping someone and raising them up too. So it's, it's very sad that, you know, that, that idea of just compassion is is termed as socialism which of course you know nazism was socialism so i don't think that's uh you know an apples to apples statement no i i that that makes sense i can see what you're saying there with the socialism has kind of a negative connotation to it associated with uh the fascism yeah yeah basically yeah um so the other side of the coin, so you talked about, you know, that heartbreaking moment where you saw how vulnerable this village was going to be when when you guys had to leave. What about moments of compassion and kindness? You're in this country, I think, again, a big misnomer for people who just are glued to CNN or Fox is we're all get, you know we're at war with Iraq, we're at war with Afghanistan, where the reality is there are some horrible people in those countries that are terrorizing their own people. So did you did you have any kind of moments that, that spring to mind of kindness and compassion amidst that battleground that you were in? Nothing in particular. There were so many, you know, wonderful, beautiful moments, along with the bad ones too. I don't want to act like it was all glitz and glamour but there's just so many different occasions but nothing comes to mind specifically in regards to that my thing was i always loved like the children there because you know even jesus says it in a certain way i don't know exactly how but you know take care of the little ones and i always like that stuck with me and i was in no way shape in my faith at all before my injury because i was baptized and i spoke about that on uh, keith nestor's program the Catholic feedback he's got to show. And I spoke about having my last rites done to me when I was injured in 2014, not to jump forward, but we'll get there. Yeah. Well, I mean, let's go there now. So, so you, you know, you've been deployed in Afghanistan, you know, you're, you and your men are working as force multipliers trying to train up in you know, a militia within that country which again i agree with you completely not only seems to be a great idea as a concept but i hear over and over again from a lot of your brothers that if that was something that was done early and efficiently you know then we could have probably left much much sooner than the prolonged conflict that we had um absolutely so actually save please tons of money and- yeah but actually I, I'll, I'll cut my you know preface to the next question so what are your thoughts on that no i definitely that's something i agree with completely i'm like there's a right way to do it and granted you can't armchair quarterback things as that was one of the sayings we always had is like you can't go only if we did this you know you could do that all day long but you know you're not going to get anywhere all you can do is try to learn from your mistakes and move forward. That's the best way I can look at it. And I don't know what that is exactly from this point on. But yes, if we would have done things 
with the special forces from the get-go probably would have been a lot more efficient because that's what ended up happening anyways the conventional forces which is the big military units that are larger we're doing what we do and that's our skill set you know what we're great at we're i always use the phrase and i have my flag i think you can kind of see it see it behind me the green beret yes motto or one of our mottos cliches that there are is uh how's it go just a sec kind of lost my train of thought there with the flag sorry tbi yeah no no problem at all um but yeah It'll come back to me yeah and please if it does just jump in um but yeah so i think that's that's the point though you know you go in you know you you empower the people that are there, and it seems like from my mili- my uh, civilian, very uneducated eyeballs, the the huge military presence that we put there just seemed to put more and more men and women in danger. Hence, the you know horrendous IED casualty rate that we had. Exactly, and that's exactly it. You have a bigger footprint, as we call it, means more money, more presence. So yes, you can do a lot more with less. Because like you used the word earlier, one of our famous statements is we're force multipliers as a Green Beret. One ODA or detachment team, when I say ODA, I mean Operational Detachment Alpha. That's just the acronym that they use for the Green Beret team. And uh, we are a force multiplier where we can lead, train up to a battalion-sized element of foreign or we can train and assist up to a battalion size, which is, I don't know the exact, I don't remember the exact quantities there, but it's a large size board. <laughs> so that's where that term comes for, comes from force multiplier. Yeah, no, and I think it's, like I said, it's a, it's an amazing concept. Now, speaking of acronyms, so talk to me about your position as EOD. And then let's walk into um, July 2014. Okay. Yeah. So as the, it wasn't exactly EOD, I was the Special Forces Engineer, Senior Engineer Sergeant, which is essentially the EOD for my team, my detachment. Dealing as an engineer, I specifically was trained on explosives so that I would go out. And that's what I always assumed would be my demise because I had many brothers lose their legs and arms from explosions. And then they would go back and I could kind of skip around here on a little story tangent, but I always, when I came out of my coma after a month long coma, I was like, always want, I was like, I just want to go back. Even though my wife was like, what the heck is wrong with this guy? (laughs) And we can jump into that one. If you'd like is the mentality of folks like myself that that's serving yeah please let's go and why they want it and that is my belief and why part of this ptsd and suicide problem we have in our veteran community is something i've kind of my new passion researching and figuring out is because that sense of love shared while you're overseas serving in those harmful situations nowhere else back here in the states can we find that and that you just want that, you know, sense again. Some folks will say, oh, you're just an adrenaline junkie. But now it's love. And once again, we go back to what we were talking about with faith. That's the ultimate pleasure, you know, at true love and that feeling of somebody would give their life for yourself or before themselves, you know, for the other 
or as Bishop Barron has said famously, love is willing the good of the other. That's his definition of it. Yeah, no, I, I love that. Not to use the phrase yet again and again, but I think I've seen that with a lot of the problems that we have, whether someone's wounded or injured, whether it's retirement, whether it's even promotion away from a group of men and women is that loss of tribe. You know, and I think that tribe is love, you know, that that group. If you find a group that you love hanging around, there's going to be an element of love within that. And then that purpose, you know, and I think that's when, you know, myself, for example, driving home after 24 hours at the fire station, I used to love it when we had run a call that truly had made a difference, whether it was a life-saving call, whether it was appeasing an elderly woman or, or a small child that was upset. You knew you made a difference in the world, a, a tiny, tiny, tiny difference. And that also comes from love. So when you get veterans or responders or doctors and nurses or, you know, civilians who are pulled away from that tribe and pulled away from that purpose, I absolutely believe that is a huge, huge kind of element or contributing factor to some of the mental health challenges that we see. No, absolutely. And that you nailed it there. Psychologically speaking, that's definitely the case. It took me a long time to kind of figure that one out. Doing research and post-injury and coming out of my coma, all like I said, all I wanted to do was go back and serve. And I thought if in my head, they call it perseveration in the neuroscience field, which is just a word, fancy doctor word for uh, the brain, neuro, neurology. So yeah, I'll, I'll break down those terms because I am a chameleon. And that's another term for us Green Berets that we use. We adapt to the environment that we're placed in. And I was placed in a rehab, a brain injury or TBI rehab environment for quite a few years. So I kind of just absorbed all the as much knowledge as I could. Essentially, what that means is that's an analogy for my ability to blend into the environment or learn from the environment I'm placed in. So I was around medical folks for a long time, and I just absorbed a lot of the words and the lingo. Like I used with one of my CBTs or cognitive behavioral therapists, a counselor, the word, uh, I have plantar flexor tone. And he's like, what is that shit? Because he was a Marine. <laughs> he's like, I don't care about that shit. You don't have that. And he was trying, he was helping me. I was one of my angels, as I call it. Like he really helped me along the Pat road to recovery and taught me a lot but yeah he uh basically that was one example of like some of the verbiage i used from the medical community and basically it means that your toes were curling yes so yeah <laughs> the plantar flex so it pulls me it's a non-volitional tone just to something that happens with a brain injury so my brain injury was to my right hemisphere because I don't know if you can see it, but I always wear the bullet that side, the U.S. version of the bullet, the PKM round that hit me in my helmet, which I used to, I have my helmet, but it's all packed up right now because we're fixing the move. So, and we'll go with my Southern word there, fixing the move. <laughs> That's the time in Georgia. <laughs> yeah. So we've well, talked about injury. So let's just kind of backstep just for a moment. So walk me through that day, you know, where you were shot. Yep. Okay. So 
quick summary, that deployment was short-lived for me because I was hanging behind. As And that's another beauty of the special forces units. We can deploy one guy at a time, like myself for this one. The unit, the rest of my team was in country, meaning in Afghanistan already. And I had a, my son was being born. So I was permitted to stay behind. And I wasn't, I was actually a late, what we call a late deployer. So I flew commercial air to Germany and then got jumped on a military aircraft into Kandahar, Afghanistan or Bagram, one of the two. I get in, get debriefed by my team sergeant on what's going on, what they're up to. And at this point in the uh, the conflict, we were at a point where we were already starting to retrograde, meaning pull equipment, pack up equipment and send it home. So I was already seeing some of like this craziness that was going down as a senior guy on the team. I'm like, we are just throwing U.S. money, tax dollars away right now, not to jump into something very politically polarized right now. But I was like, what the hell, man? That's U.S. tax dollar money. Those flat screen TVs were just throwing away. And it just kind of hurt me. But I, that's what was going on at the time. So my team sergeant debriefed me really quick. We're doing a a real quick mission, like not quick, but it was just a very complex targeting mission. And I'm like, as a senior guy on the team, I'm like, this is, I did not agree with it. I was like, this is crazy. Why are we doing this? You know, and retrograding. I mean, what is the purpose for us like this to pick? And I, my last conversation or transcribed message to my wife, very benign was I'm going into the hornet's nest because I knew it was going to be a freaking shit show. Basically, I was like, why are we doing this? You know, <laughs> we're going to pick a fight, essentially, being a well-known Taliban village. Actually, that where I got injured was the birthplace of the Taliban, Panjway, because we were fighting from Panjway District Center. That's basically the main base we were working out of. They were already starting to move U.S. troops around this time back to bigger bases and pull back in the process of leaving the country. But, you know, it's a long process. But anyhow, so I'm get all my gear and settled in and get out there early as hell in the morning. So we're doing this firefight mission or to go target these damn insurgents and Basically, like I said, pick a fight with them. So we drive into the village. It's zero dark 30, as I jokingly wrote in my book. I'm like, it was dark as hell outside. So we're in under night vision goggles. I'm, I picked to be on top of the truck as the engineer because I want to be able to see if there's any IEDs. Because these mine-resistant vehicles, basically, they're like, when you're in them, you just have little camera ports that you look out. They're like an armored car. and You can't see anything in your environment. So I want, as a senior guy on the team, I want to be able to see everything, you know, and make sure I could alert the team if there's a, a IED on the ground or improvised explosive device. And, you know, and then we have our uplifter infantry squad that's with us as backup inside the truck because they're lower ranking guys. And we you always put the lower ranking before yourself, you know, even when you're eating they always eat before you as a senior guy. You're one of the last to eat. That's just the process in the military, the way it works, the rank structure. So I chose the most dangerous position on the truck. And uh, my last recalled memory was like 
my medic was an arm's length away from me on the next, because he's another senior guy on the team. Dirty Mike, as I jokingly call him, his nickname. But this man saved my life. So by doing a battlefield tracheotomy, which means he cut open my throat and got an airway in. While under heavy gunfire, I learned about this all after the fact, of course. I wasn't aware. From my perspective, my last memory was being like, Mike, this shit is getting really intense just hearing whizzing bullets over my head because I had been in quite a few gunfights prior to this. It wasn't my first picnic to use that cliche. But I was like, this is getting serious, man. And next thing you know, waking up a month later in a after my coma and not knowing Obama came to visit me. And I'm not a fan of the guy and his politics, but I was at Walter Reed and I saw a picture of myself in a coma and Obama's there holding my son who, like I said, was just born. So he was a baby and Obama apparently picked him up and goes, look at your ears are so cute. Or you look like a, a clown or something like that. I'm like, who the hell's talking? <laughs> But anyhow, so yeah, there was all that missed memory lapse. Like they took me to Germany. They gave me my Purple Heart and baptized me while I was at Kandahar Airfield at Roll 3. That's the hospital, the combat hospital in Kandahar on the airfield there. They got me stable enough, baptized me, had the Catholic priest come in and bap- give me the last rites. My, meanwhile, my wife had that done because she was co- conversing with the command via phone call. And, you know, they're telling her, like, all oh, the prognoses not looking good and 11% chance of surviving. And that's why I titled my book that. And, uh, yeah, so sh- they get me to Germany. For, I mean, stabilize me at Con- Kandahar, get me to Germany at Landstuhl and do a craniectomy, which means they remove part of my skull so my brain could swell. Stabilize me there enough to get me across the Atlantic George, uh, to uh, Walter Reed. Let me stop that alarm going off. But yeah, so they, they got me over the... They have taken me... They get me to launch stool, which is in Germany, do the craniectomy there, remove, remove my skull, stabilize me, get me enough to get across the Atlantic on a C-17 or whatever. And this is the really bizarre part because I'm comatose at this time, but I have little memories that I'm told by neuropsychologists, these are called confabulations, meaning they're just made up memories off of stuff that I know that happened during that time from people I spoke to. Because I had my former team sergeant who actually was the one that rode with me on that flight. And he jokingly tells me, Joe, you had to spike a fucking fever over the Atlantic. I'm freezing my nuts off on the aircraft because they dropped the temperature for me, of course, you know, as the injured guy. And he just joke. That's just the humor that we have. But yeah, so they get me across the Atlantic and to Walter Reed in Washington, D.C. Meanwhile, my wife is being notified because she was out here in Southern California staying with fam. And then they flew her out to come see me, I guess. Like I said, I was comatose during this time. But then while I'm at Walter Reed in D.C., I seen pictures because the White House sent me an autographed photograph of when Obama came. And uh, it was looked in dire straits. We'll just put it that way. And then I, so my first, like where I, 
emerged, as they call it, came out of my coma, was Palo Alto VA Rehab Unit, the polytrauma unit in Northern California, and began my rehab process there, intensive rehab process, which is actually what I'm writing my book on. Because I had, while I was in my second rehab hospital, I had a friend mention it to me. He's like, Joe, why don't you write a book? And I was, it gave me the idea. So I started tracking my thoughts, you know, in the process. So I didn't forget any of the stuff, you know, and started jotting it down in notes on my phone and had this just cumbersome notepad on my phone. Cause like I said, I'm a tech nug and don't know much about any of that stuff and figuring out. And then I compiled it all put together and got a book going and thought to write it, you know, I thought a lot about it. And I was like, I haven't been to school and got my education, formal education yet. But I was like, you know, let me, you know, lots of Navy SEALs have written about combat experiences, but I don't know much about that part because of the, as I call it, my blessing of my PTSD. And that's the thing too to recognize that PTSD is a very dynamic disorder. I know they're, they drop the D off of it or whatever, something like that, but I'm not a very PC guy. So I just say things as they are. And it's, PTSD. So, and I would deny I even had it because I didn't understand the fact that it's dynamic and mine is specific. I don't remember the events of my trauma. Just from my perspective, I was doing what I told you up until the point of that bullet hitting my dome and then it lights out. And a month later, I woke up in Palo Alto. No recollection of the time in between there. Just the story was told to me by my medic who was from an arm's distance away from me. And he said, I fell into the truck. He thought I was sleeping or something and then because it happened so quickly and then he started going to work on me. They were still in a heavy gunfight. and He did the battlefield trach on me and he tells me to this day in a very colorful manner. He's like, Joe, I had to sit on you for like an hour. And that you got to understand that's heavy on a 18 Delta. That's the acronym for our or the co MOS code or job title for our medics, the special forces medics, which are the most highly trained medical personnel within the military and they because they go through a rigorous training course that takes over a year i do stints in the hospital because when we are deployed as a team to a foreign country they serve as a doctor for some you know whether it's in south america or afghanistan and so their training is quite intensive and anyhow so this guy saved my life saint michael as i call him now that I'm in my faith and his name's Mike. So we stay in contact still. But yeah, it was quite an event and began my rehab. I, where was that? I was at Palo Alto and emerged from a coma there, not knowing anything that happened in between. Wasn't able to speak, wasn't even able to sit up at the time because I had a trach still and had to start from there. Not even able to eat or anything because they had me with... Uh, what do they call it? A feeding tube and all that stuff. Like I said, they told my wife, very small chance of me even coming. If big, if I came out of my coma, vegetable for the rest of my life, let alone reaching the point where I am today, writing, talking, walking with assistance and working towards driving again, regaining my driver's license. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, like you said, that that moment where one minute you're in the truck and the next minute you've, you've lost a, a month of your life. 
I watched a video and it was the the White Heart Foundation um, yeah. did a short video on you and there was a very kind of very powerful story of the first word that you said after you were extubated. So I'd love to hear that. Oh, yes. My uh, oldest daughter, Jade, I, I, was, I said her name apparently because I don't remember much of all that. It's all a blur. But yeah, the, the story I do remember is what my wife tells me that my oldest daughter, Jade, goes running to my mother-in-law's neighborhood, which very beautiful. There's other stories about what they did for me on one of our trips home as I, to there during the Christmas season while I was in the hospital. But anyhow, so she was there and she goes running back down the street telling everybody, my dad's first words were my name. And she tells that story just of like out of excitement, you know, because it was their news that they were receiving was very grim. Yeah, well, and that's what I got from it as well. I mean, here you are, their father, their husband, lying in a coma, intubated, you know, and, and the the impacts on the family. I think, sadly, the you know, military families, first responder families are not really thought of very much. So to have them almost awaiting the worst case scenario, and then one day you're extubated and, and you say her name, I mean... I, I can only imagine how powerful that must have been for her and obviously the rest of your family as well. No, absolutely. And like they say in that video, you were t referring to the White Heart video. I think my wife was the one that was talking about it. Jade and I were very close before the rest of my children came along because she was the only child for a long period of time. I don't know the exact time period before we had our second, but it was quite a while. It's by far the longest ga age gap difference we have between any of our children was Jade and the next one, Jazzy. So she spent a lot of, her and I had a lot of time, quality time together, you know, and. Beautiful. Well, so prior to being shot, you were one of the most elite soldiers on the planet, certainly in the U.S., and, you know, that moment, you know, your life changes. Now you wake up a month later. I mean, just a month in a hospital bed, I'm sure. Not only the injury itself, but you were probably atrophied from not moving for all that time as well. I want to get Absolutely. to the... couldn't even hold up my neck. I remember like, and this is a funny thought, and I wrote about it in my book. Once again, I'll reference that again. The story is, I was like, I couldn't even hold my head up. And one of the first therapies, because I had to wear a, a bicycle helmet when I first came out of my emerged from my coma anytime I was out of my bed because I still didn't have my skull flap or the artificial bone flap put in the cranial cranioplasty as it's known as meaning they put an artificial I have an artificial like mesh thing in here now for my skull to take the place of my skull so I had exposed brain at that time so anytime I got out of the bed I had to have a helmet on and I remember them taping, a, like my PTs at the time, taping a laser pointer to my head and putting like playing cards on a wall. And I had to scan and like they'd say ace of spades and I'd have to point at it with my neck. And it was so hard to even hold my head up, right? Because of the atrophy. And it's funny because I thought in my head, how I processed like, who the fuck cut my neck muscles out? And, you know, and the same thing with my abs when one of the PTs was like, we got to work on your uh, trunk, trunk control. And I was like, in my head, I was like, who the fuck are you talking to? I was like, this guy, in my head, I was the guy that did CrossFit and 
what we call like the look good naked program. I'm like, I did 10 minutes of abs straight. I was like, but you know, not understanding that all that atrophy had happened. But yeah, that's a funny thing you brought up. I'm like, that to me, that was a big deal in the beginning. I had a hard time understanding that happens after being in bed for a month. Yeah, well, so you take the mental impact though, and obviously you, you touched a little bit on PTSD now, but what was what was the journey like for you mentally? I want to get to the physical rehab, but you know that must have been pretty crushing. And I heard you in one of the interviews talking about um, the feeling of burden, which to me is one of the huge red flags I've heard with a lot of people that be on the show that have either been very close to suicide. Some of them actually, you know, completed suicide. They just didn't die from the injuries they jumped from the bridge they shot themselves and it's always that same thing i felt like i was a burden on my family i felt like the world would be better off without me so what was that mental journey you wake up not occupying the same tactical athlete physique that you had before and the ability that you had before and now you're lying you know they just extubated you and you know you're surrounded by your loved ones in your your hospital bed you know what was that mental journey like that was definitely a long process. And so initially, like I kind of alluded to earlier, I think I mentioned is all I wanted to do was go back to my team. And I saw fellow brothers of mine that had were double amputees and they would go back on deployments. And I thought that that was going to be, you know, an option for me, not understanding that they call it perseveration. And then like I, yeah, I did mention that earlier. So yeah, I thought I was going to be able to go back and, but looking back on that, that helped me in those early stages of my rehab process because it is a tough mental challenge to deal with that loss of who you are, you know. And I had to recreate that or figure that out is through nugging through it and just the grinding it out. And it's like, yeah, the journey was long and it took a long time to come into my new journey as co-founder and president of my own veteran nonprofit, United Wings of Liberty, which we can go into that one too. I'd love to talk more about that. Yeah. Whenever you're no, absolutely. I want to get to that, you know, definitely. And then talk about the book as well. Um, so what with the physical rehab, I heard, I think the podcast I heard you on was um, Katsu. And that was very interesting because I've had a blood flow restriction guest on the show before. Um, so talk to me about some of the tools that you found worked to getting, you know, the, the kind of broken connection between your brain and your body back to the point where you're starting to be able to, to move your neck and then sit up and then stand and then ultimately walk. Well, the, as you, I've tried, I've got my own little term form, the catalyst, catalyst, companies and things that a, a training benefit or rehab whatever you want to term them as well the main one i always give big shouts to it was formerly known as the brain treatment center but now wave neuro who are one of our partners they so what they do is something called magnetic resonance therapy for the brain and it's fda approved i believe for the treatment of anxiety and depression and anyhow so they I had access to them through the SOCOM Care Coalition, which is a Special Operations Command Care Coalition, and they uh, got me access. And another friend of mine, John Doolittle, who's a Navy SEAL, former Navy SEAL camp captain, 
Captain Doolittle, who works for Katsu Global now as their chief revenue author, officer. But anyhow, so he he worked for the Care Coalition and connected me with the Brain Treatment Center, which there's videos. They have it on their website of my success story after my first treatment. It was the spark that connected my left leg and I was able to kick my, I had no movement on my left side, emergent, post-emergence from my coma. And then I went out there and it's located in Newport Beach, California, went out there for my first treatment and I was able to kick my left leg out. And there's, they got a video of it, me kicking the doctor. And it was like a big freaking moment. They, I mean, of like some medical science breakthrough because it, and the way I love this analogy that one of my DPTs or doctors of physical therapy, one of my physical therapists told me to explain it this way. He's like, Joe, if you think of your car like a car, or your body like a car and your brain as the battery, what they're doing for you to simplify it is they're jumpstarting your battery. And then it's my job as your physical therapist to take you out on the road and drive you. And I love that analogy. And it just kind of helped open my eyes to what they because they do something called peripheral nerve stimulation in this magnetic field that kicks that neural signal down and there are so many benefits to the thing i mean the sleep because they taught me about correcting the sleep wake cycle which i was not aware of how jacked up and a lot of the modern you know especially us military folks because we serve in a, in a foreign country, way different time zone and night vision goggles. It just, our bodies are so in tune to light, especially the eyeball. And nowadays we have all this blue light flashing in our face with our electronic devices at the wrong times. And it's telling us, wake up. And that's why there's a coffee shop, in my opinion, on every corner. We're overstimulated and underslept. So they helped me kind of figure that out and correct that. And that was a huge piece of my success in rehab. So with, uh, with the goals, tell me some of the benchmarks that you were able to achieve. And then once you achieved that, what was the next one? Well, initially coming out of my coma, like I mentioned earlier, I thought and my goal was to just walk. I thought if I can only walk, I'll be able to go back and serve but you know I, I love ambulating as it's called walking and I feel good when I'm up and standing and moving and it just makes me feel good and I, it's funny because I like uh, I, the irony behind it is I listen to ambulators as I call people that aren't impaired and in wheelchairs I'm like they can't wait to sit down and I'm like I can't wait to stand up like I want to, my bed serves as my standing table because I have an elevating hospital bed right now in my room. And eventually in my home that's being built, I want to get a standing table because I'd rather be standing whenever I'm typing and writing. It's more comfortable to me to be off of my butt. Yeah. It's kind of funny how that works, I guess. No, it is. It's an irony. And I think that's something that I think is one of the biggest tragedies of modern society is we have people like yourself people who maybe were born with you know some sort of uh disorder or you know uh, anatomical difference um you know people that get ms or als and and you know they all they want is just a healthy body just just to be able to do what they could do before what they see other people do and yet we have an environment 
that creates such atrophy of the human body with a lot of people through obesity and, you know, and inactivity. And that leads to, you know, obviously a lot of diseases and back pains. And then you go down the opiate route and the other meds route. And there's just such a kind of tragedy seeing someone who was gifted a healthy body who does nothing with it and seeing someone who lost that healthy body who, you know, would do anything just to get that healthy body that someone wasted by not treating it the way it should have been treated, if that makes sense. No, absolutely. And you kind of mentioned it there, the opioid thing. So I had to go, and that's part of my book too, I wrote about it. I had to go through what they call a titrated narcotic detox because I was at such a level of opioid dependency that the medicine was causing the pain. And that blew my mind at the time because I was like, I'm not uh, these were my exact words to my wife. It's like, I'm not fucking addicted. And I got really upset about it because she was like holding back my meds. And I'm like, I'm not fucking addicted to this shit. I'm in pain. And it really upset me. And I didn't understand it until a doctor, a neurologist explained it to me, a brain doctor. He's like, no, you're, you're at a, such a level where the medication, your pain receptors start receiving that medication as pain signals versus medication to help alleviate the pain. So it was very medically important that I go through a titrated medical detox and I had to be hospitalized for it and everything. And it was very well done at the uh, Costa Colina Centers for Rehab in uh, Pomona, California. They were very professional with the way that because I was just expecting what you see on TV shows like this. Especially the way I felt at the time whenever I wouldn't get my pain pill, I would get all like jittery and pissed off and angry. I was like, oh, this is going to be horrible. I'm going to get the DTs and everything, but the way they do it unbeknownst to you, they titrate it, just meaning they lower the dose gradually in a liquid form. So you don't even really notice it, but it was very smooth in the way. And then once I was off the mental clarity, folks would tell me, they're like, Joe, you're so much more clear headed now. And I, to me, I didn't see, just like when we lose weight, you don't notice, you know, because we see ourselves every day. I was not aware of the things that they were telling me. They're like, no, you were like, there was a delay. So it was a beautiful thing to get off of, you know, but that, yes, the folks struggle with that kind of thing. I'll tell them, you know, it's not easy, but the way they did it for me was very smooth because I was expecting what you see on Hollywood films, you know, with those detoxes that folks are just DTs and freaking out so talk to me, where was the, the lowest point that you found yourself mentally? And then what was that um, kind of journey? What, what did you use to take yourself up to, you know, to where you are now? As, as we talked about earlier, you talk about therapies and, and I want to get to your morning routine, which I know is very healing. So where was that dark place? And then how did you get yourself out of there? Oh, okay. Yeah, the dark night of the soul for me, and I'll use that terminology i don't know if you're familiar with it or heard that before dark night of the soul so my dark night of the soul experience came at the point of time so they kept they kept me on active duty for quite a number of years after my injury because i like i said i was fighting the med med board as it's known as meaning my medical about retirement being pushed out of the military and you know not to my wife she didn't want that of course but you know i was fighting it and saying, no, I'm fine, and trying to fight that and go back. But she's like, no, you need to tell them you have PTSD and all that. You're going to get more benefits and this and that. And I was like, but I did not understand it at the time. 
but so yeah, I was at, I was kept at Casa Colina for quite a bit of time, several years. And then when I finally was pushed towards the military was like, okay, we got to retire this guy. And they were like, the VA came in and like evaluated all my medical records or whatever they do. And they looked at everything and my improvements at Casa Colina. And they were like, you know, this is too expensive. We're not getting, and you know, that's, I was pissed off at the time of their evaluation, but they went through the paperwork and they were like, he's not making enough progress. We want to put him in this other facility that was up in Bakersfield, California, which is the middle of nowhere, if you're not familiar with it. And I was really upset about it. So they moved me up to a center for neuroskills or CNS. And I, w- I went through my dark night of the soul. I was like, cause I lost everybody that I was accustomed to. And I just was so depressed. I mentioned like, I, I wasn't very good with social media. And I said some things that like made everybody worry. I was just so damn pissed off and depressed. And I was like lost because I lost everything that I was familiar with at the time. I had set my little routines there and they broke it, but I needed to be broken like that. And then I had the best one, another one of my angels come into my life. And I'll mention her name here because she is she was one of my therapists that counselor CBTs at the time, a therapist, counselor, and she said something to me that really just opened up my eyes. She's like, Joe. Or she she like she liked to blow up my head as I jokingly would say. She's like, Joe, Joe Lowry, what is your uh your fear? And I was like, I'm afraid of being alone. And she's like, do you, she asked me this. She's like, do you believe in Jesus as our Lord, as our Lord and Savior? And I was like, I sure do, Janine. She's like, well, then you are never alone. And the light bulb just went off in my head. And I'm not going to say that's going to work for everybody. But for me, that touched me deeply where I was just like, okay. And I got it from that point on. I was just like, okay, change. Eyes opened up and started working on my faith. And that just kind of healed me gradually, of course. But then, you know, that, that little spark kind of went into growing and then I was eventually they taught me to walk there again and stabilize me because what they do is they put the patient in an apartment setting that's monitored by the staff and you have staff in there helping you but the a point is to get the patient dependent enough or independent enough to go to a home setting so they got me dependent or independent enough to get where I could go home, which is here in Ontario, California now. And I was reunited with my family after several years and began the journey of being to this home. That's what we're calling home for right now and been calling home for several years, awaiting our home that's being built currently. Not too far away in Rancho Cucamonga, like I mentioned by the Jared Allen's Homes for Heroes Foundation. Big shout out to them and what they do. Beautiful. We'll touch you on your spirituality because you're not the first person I had on the show that that was that was what pulled them out. You know, it was Christianity or you know whatever the other faiths were, but you know, seemingly mainly Christianity and the guests that have come on here. Um, what did your faith? You know, what does your faith look like now? What what is different about it than say prior to you being wounded? Well, I think prior to me being wounded, I always had the belief in a God, but I wasn't close to him whatsoever, had no relationship, I think is what it was. And the word religion just means to realign, I think is the Greek, if I'm not, but that's not important. But either way, it's just, 
folks get so mixed up with religion thinking there's a negative connotation on it that it's not it's not for everybody but it's a relationship i have like i told my stepbrother i was like i don't do he's like i don't do, i don't do that religion thing i was like okay well i don't either i do jesus it's like i have a relationship with him and it's a game changer for me i was like you just gotta and i you know i was at my lowest point i was just like you take this over, Lord. You do with um, your servant. You take over, and I welcome him in. I invite it because he won't come into your life unless you invite him. I just and this is my personal testimony. I just invited him in in a very heartfelt prayer. And I was like, "You, I'm at my wits' end here." And I was like, "I don't know what to do." So you take over, and you just submit yourself to His will, like our Lord's prayer says. That thy will be done, not mine. And that to me was what I did personally. And that's from a Christian perspective, a Christian Catholic perspective, that was the way I did it. And I mean, everybody has, everybody is different and has their own way of getting there. There was some expression put, or this guy, preacher that I listened to, he put it to the way that there's many ways of pointing at the moon. But it doesn't matter how you get there, just get there. Or there's many fingers pointing at the moon, but they're all, you know, it doesn't matter. Just get there. How you do it. Because he mixes a lot of uh, Catholic and what he does a lot of uh, Eastern spirituality too, which I'm a big fan of that kind of stuff too. But you just got to put God, to me personally, I always put Jesus first and that other stuff like meditation, as long as it's in line with that, it all comes together for the right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that's, that's something that's come up before as well. I mean, it's something that I subscribe to is, you know, everyone has their own interpretation of the spiritual path and some might be very, very strictly aligned with whichever church you go to, or some might be more, you know, kind of like pick a mix, as we say in, in England with our, our candies. You know, you, you okay, I, I love this concept here. I love this concept here. And you have your own your own version, but you're taking wisdom from the Bible, the Torah, you know, wh- wherever it is, um, and, you know, combining it. And again, like for me personally, I definitely have a relationship with God and kindness, compassion. You know, that's that's the core of my whole spiritual relationship. Can't go wrong there. No, I don't think so. <laughs> no. So, so one area that I've seen is not only very healing for the individual themselves, but I think is also, you know, again, stemming from what you talked about, the spirituality, the, the, the call to service that, you know, brought you into the army in the first place is altruism. And I've had so many people on here that are, you know, veterans that are first responders, you know, that are just men and women on the ground who see that, you know, these very, very well-funded organizations are dropping the ball in some areas, so they take the reins themselves. So talk to me about your journey to creating United Wings of Liberty. Okay, that's a very good story. So I'm going to do my best to tell it. And because we're still working on it. And But anyhow, the basics of it was, so my brother from another mother, as I jokingly say. He's a guy that I met, my business partner, and he's the one that reached out to you on LinkedIn or whatever. He's more familiar with uh, tech stuff than I am. But anyhow, so him and I met in that selection course back whenever it was. And 
we were brothers since then and just stayed in contact. And after he actually was at Fort Bragg when I initially got injured and came up to see me and I was in a coma, so I didn't know of this at the time, but he comes back into my life after I was at home here in Ontario and he, cause he lives in Reno now, Nevada. He's and all my guys that I was serving with are back in Florida on the East coast. So we're far apart. He comes and visits me because he lived with us when I had one. I think I only had two kids at the time when I was Jade and my second Jazzy. So he's lived with us before. He's a part of the family and comes visits with his wife at the time he had gotten married and stays with us for a little bit. And he's like, he knew when I was in the hospital still, but going back a little bit, when I was in at Costa Colina, I gained a lot of weight eating like shit because after I got that trach out and did my swallowy bow and I was able to eat again, real food, I kind of went crazy with things and thought I could get away with eating junk and hamburgers and fries for every meal and syrup and pancakes for breakfast every day. And you're sedentary when you're in a wheelchair. And I, I, I love telling this story. So I'll kind of go off on a tangent here, but it's a quick one. So I, jokingly or i get weighed at the hospital and they weigh me and i come in at like 280 or something like that like, that the wheelchair and they're like nope that's you i was like my ass was never over 200 pounds before my injury i was hovered around the 190s i was like damn and the doctor one of the doctors at btc or wave neuro dr jim and his thick asian accent he goes try losing 40 to 50 pounds it'd be so much easier to stand and walk and i was like no shit. When I was five pounds lighter <laughs> and serving, it was way easier to do pull-ups and push-ups. It was like 40 or 50 pounds. Holy hell, if I lose that much. So, you know, I just did the simple things. I stopped eating carbs. That's how I started off. And then I got into ketogenic diet, which that's a whole nother rabbit hole go down. But yeah, I got really into that diet. And then, or I don't even like the word diet, lifestyle, and dropped a ton of weight and but anyhow, where was I going with that story? So I was on heavy narcotics and super fat at the time. And my brother, Steve, came out and visited me. And he knew I wanted to do a skydive post-injury, but I was too heavy. So like I said, I started losing weight and listening to what the doctor said and got light enough. And he's like, I'm going to take you and we're going to go do skydive. So he, pay, he set it all up, did all of the coordinations and stuff to get a special harness for my crippled butt to do a damn skydive. Because we both were, you know, jumpers in the military. And But jumping's not fun in the military. You get paid extra to do it. Now we pay, and him and I joke about this, now we pay to go skydiving. We were getting paid before to do this, but it's a lot funner or more fun. <laughs> But anyhow, so yeah, we go do a skydive and it just reinvigorates or as another, my Katsu master trainer, which you mentioned Katsu, that's another organization or therapy that I got access to through John Doolittle. And they, uh, they do BFR or a, a version of it that's helped me out tremendously. And the, anyhow, then the trainer, David Tao, the master trainer at, with Katsu Global, he tells me, Joe, that was probably a neuro reset for you, just all of the adrenaline flushed out of your body. And so on our ride home, because it scared the piss out of me. I mean, it was 
I mean, suicide mode is what Steve and I, my business partner, always called it whenever we were going. No matter how many times you jump out of a perfectly good plane, it gets you nervous. And it's like, but there's nothing like it. You know, that feeling gives you that rush. Once you're on the ground and you're okay, you're like, fuck yeah. So on our drive, because it was in San Diego, on our drive home, he's like, because by this time he already has his MBA. He'd been in school and did that. He was out of the military before I... And he's like, Joe, how would you feel about starting up a nonprofit? And I was like, I wrote it down as a goal or typed it in my phone. So when I got to what is home here in Ontario, I put down to try to organize my life. I just listed out some goals. I heard somebody, maybe Tony Robbins, talk about doing that. And I was like, I just write, there's something with writing it out. And I listed it out very vaguely. Start a veteran nonprofit not specifically what it would be or anything but that i just wrote it on that list and i was like it was something i had wrote out and he's like i was like i don't know anything about business or but he's like i have the mba and i'll do all that he's like you just be the face of the company i have the connections now and that's something else a brother of mine who was injured told me joe he's like do what we were trained to do set up those networks and so i was like okay i do know a lot of people and talk to people and you know can bet and there's other little pieces I'll plug in there. There's folks that I met like Dave, Dave uh, DeLuca. He's an investment banker or something in that area of the field, career field. And him and I met on a Southwest flight. I was actually flying back from a, a trip to, I believe, Texas. And he was like, ah, he saw my, because I was rocking my veteran hat, my purple heart hat. And he's like, what happened to you? And he asked, so I started sharing with him my testimony. And he's like, look, Joe, I deal with, big companies that invest in nonprofits and I want to know like no shit which ones are good and it's like that was one of the ideas in my head I was like I could definitely list out to you who's who in the zoo like of not the veteran nonprofit space and tell you like who I've personally benefited from and which ones that don't do shit but have a lot of advertising and marketing so that was part of our you know, foundation or pillar, whatever you want to call it, of our our nonprofit with United Wings of Liberty is vetting the nonprofits because there is a ton of nonprofits out there in the veteran space that do think great things, and there's also ones that don't do such great things. And so I was like, okay, I'll list those out, and and I you know have personal relationships with a lot of these folks, and not just nonprofits, but for-profit companies like Wave Neuroscience, who did my the Brain Treatment Center, and their CMO or Chief Medical Officer, he's a veteran and a friend of mine, Doc Eric Wan, and him and I, you know, we're partnered now, and he takes care of. We have one testimony of our success story of our foundation where we brought one of the guys I met. He's a veteran, high suicide, uh, suicide um, risk, and. I won't mention the guy's name just for his privacy of the matter, but anyhow, so I met the guy and he's another reason, kind of one of the sparks of the idea. When I was in the last rehab center, CNS, I was at, we lived together in the apartments and his uh, fiance at the time wrote me a letter, a personal letter saying how much my relationship with, with her fiance, the veteran that I'm just talking about and how much it meant to him. And, just my story. And I was like, that was kind of an idea. It was like, well, you know, how was I helping him? You know, but it didn't really 
dawn on me until I did some processing on it and thought about it. And I'm like, okay, that, you know, there's helping, there's healing and helping, I think is the phrase that I like to use. Yeah, no, I, I think that's, it's so admirable, like I said, to see these people that already served and in, in your case and several others and got wounded during their service and still came out and went, you know what, I'm going to help other people. And I know there's, like I said, there's a, there's definitely a healing element of that. And I think that's why, as we discussed earlier, you know, a lot of religions talk about helping other people. Sometimes I think that message is a little misunderstood, you know, helping other people, not helping yourself. Um, but I have heard some horror stories, you know, mainly off recording, um, of some, I mean, not just military nonprofits, nonprofits in general, but, you know, the admin costs are through the roof and what's actually been allocated to the people that we think our donations are going to is a very small amount. So you don't have to name names. I don't want you to name names, but no, what I are some of the, about, yeah. So what, just tell me an overview. What are some of the, the dark sides of, of that that you're seeing? And then, and then let's balance that with what are some, you know, some of the great, um, organizations that you are seeing that definitely are one that you would send people to when it comes to donations? Well, I would start with the good. And I definitely would mention uh, one that comes to the top of my head right away was uh, was Warriors on Quiet Waters in Montana. So what they do is they are a nonprofit that brings veterans like myself, Purple Heart recipients in particular, out to uh montana all paid for like they i mean i was a little nervous and apprehensive to go on the trip but i had a fellow veteran of mine back at my unit that recommended and he was like no joe go it's worth it so i took that you know trip and that was when i initially came to here in ontario and i went on it and i had a blast so they take the veteran out there like i said all expenses paid flight out there and they have caregivers taking care of you, and you sp- you stay in this nice cabin up in Montana, and they you go out and go fly fishing, and they have many of folks out there to help with like when you have disabilities like myself. So they were able to they actually had a nurse stay with me the week to take care of me while I was at the cabin. But then you go out fish, you fly fish, and they teach you how to fly fish on the various properties that folks who are up there in Montana that are just, they donate their land and property to this organization. And I'll say you go out there in a fly fit and they, they gear you up with all kinds of equipment. That's all donated to the nonprofit and it's beautiful. And they just, it's so serene and it's just relaxing. And it's you interact and tell stories with the other veterans that are there. But like I said, they just, it blew my mind with the amount of uh, care that was put into it and thought. And they, they're one of the good ones that I really was profoundly touched by. And then there's other, there's a lot of them out there that are special operations specific. So they only deal with folks that were in the special operations community. And then conversely, what about, again, not, not naming companies, but what are some of the, the, the areas you've seen where maybe nonprofits haven't been managed the way they should have been? 
Well, without naming names, I would just say that there's com- there's ones that go out there and they get big celebrity names that do commercials and market very well. But then, you know, their marketing is on point, but then they don't give anything to the veteran community. Except like I got a few T-shirts and bags and stuff like that when I was in the hospital. And I'm like, but they don't give anything significant to the veterans. They just a lot of it goes to their staff. Apparently, from what I understand, you know, overhead costs. And that's something I wanted to do different with my organization. I'm, whereas where we're at right now, we're so small, 100%. I mean, we're all voluntary staff right now. All donations would go, they're going to our minimal veterans that we're able to help right now because of the size of our organization. But I, I don't want to with personally accept the salary with my, with what I'm doing. I'm just like, it's all giving, you know, philanthropy for me right now. Not that I'm well off, but I'm like, I don't, that's not what I'm doing it for. I'm like, I choose to do it for service. I get more out of it from that giving back. Yeah, no, absolutely. Now with people listening, how can they donate? You know, where can they find uh, United Wings of Liberty online and how can they donate? Well, our main site is uwall.org. That's Uniform Whiskey Oscar Lima.org. That's U-W-O-L for United Wings of Liberty. And we're on all of the social media platforms like Facebook and Instagram. Brilliant. All right. Well, then I want to ask some closing questions in a moment. But before we do, talk to me about the process of writing a book. Um, I wrote one last year and, and found it incredibly cathartic. And it certainly opened some doors in my mind that I had totally forgotten about. Nothing that was uber suppressed, but definitely some memories that were unlocked. So what was that journey like for you? Or what is that journey like for you at the moment? Well, it's been quite struggle because, uh, like I said, I'm not an educated man. I didn't go to any formal or I didn't have any formal schooling. I jokingly say I got my education on the world streets. I do speak two languages. I know a few other words in Pashtun, but I'm like, I don't, or as my, my mother-in-law calls me, I'm an autodidactic, which just means I learn. I'm a self-learner. So I pick things up and I just read and I'm an ad, but a very a ferocious reader. I read anything and everything I can get my hands on right now. I have a, like Ben Greenfield said, it's a quote I'll borrow from him. I have a library with a kitchen. <laughs> I mean, I have a lot of books. Beautiful. Yeah, you can see in the background, I've got a fair share myself. <laughs> um, oh, yeah. So, well, speaking of books then, the very first closing question, is there a book or are there some books that you love to recommend? It can be related to our discussion today or completely unrelated. Um, I would start probably, and this is, you know, my faith journey, I would start by saying the Bible. And that's not a book, that's a library of books. And just like I did, I started from Genesis to Revelations and just read it thoroughly. And you can't read that with your mind. You have to ask the whole, and this is a personal testimony here. So please take it for what you will. But I, you got, you got to ask the Holy Spirit to help you understand and interpret the word of God. And that's what I did. I just prayed before I picked it up and really processed it and watched a lot of great speakers too on the, and get more biblical knowledge on it. But that to me was the best book I and library I could read. There's a lot in it. There's so many things of wisdom in there. 
So what about a, a movie and or a documentary that you love to recommend? Well, I don't ascribe to much te television anymore, but previously I was a big comedy guy. So I would definitely mention one of my favorite comedies is old school. We're going streaking through the quad. <laughs> Come on, Snoopaloop, bring your hat. Yeah, so I would mention that one, of course. Big fan of Owen Wilson and uh, it Will Ferrell. Will Ferrell, yeah. Brilliant. All right. Well, then the next question, is there a person you'd recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military and associated professions of the world? I definitely would recommend uh, Captain John Doolittle, he, or as I like to refer to him as the do. He uh, he was a Navy SEAL captain, which is the equivalent. I, I I didn't understand this because I wasn't in the Navy, but a captain is the equivalent of a colonel for us in the Army. So that's quite a rank up above where I was. So I'm like, uh, the guy's a brother to me now. And because I don't have my guys out on this coast. So he kind of jumped in and took me under his wing and introduced me to the Brain Treatment Center and Wave Neuro and Katsu Global. And he's very uh, well, well spoken man and I would recommend him because he's a good friend and a brother and I would also recommend my business partner granted he's not into a lot of these things he does a lot of the backside stuff and that's kind of our partnership with it and has me do the facing the facial you know the front of the curtain stuff brilliant that's Steve West yes He's a veteran as well and combat veteran. Beautiful. Well, I would love to get both those guys. We'll have to make sure that happens. And I'm sure I've heard John Doolittle's name mentioned before as well. Um, what was intriguing with me with the Katsu specifically, like I said, I had um, another BFR founder on, on the company here. But mis correct me if I'm wrong, does that not actually relate back to Japan and the original kind of discoverer? Yeah, or the, Dr. Which, Sato from yeah. Japan is the, uh, the creator. He's the sensei, as we jokingly say. Brilliant. And so, and talk to me a little bit about that with your rehab, because when, when I spoke to him, this one guest I had, he had worked with, you know, for example, NASA. He'd worked with some special operations as well. Um, I got to try the bands for a few weeks and, you know, I thought it was fantastic. Um, but, you know, obviously the, the cat suicide is automated, but now we're talking about, you know, someone with, you know, spastic issues with, um, you know, atrophy issues. So what was that application like for you with your physical recovery? Well, initially, like when they first tried it on me, that was the, one of the first things we I noticed personally was a decrease in my spastic tone, which I, I don't know if your listeners are familiar with what that is, but basically that is muscle contractions that happen non-volitionally, meaning I don't control it intentionally because of my brain injury and the signals that they're getting or as a therapist of mine said i have wires crossed is another analogy that was used so like it reduced that which can help me with things like so my left hand or impaired because it's my left side my op that that was my right arm that i stuck up but it does like this meaning it flexes 
pretty much constantly. So it gradually would open up when I'm using the katsu. And I just, I mean, anything that gets their, you know, reduces atrophy is going to help in somebody that's paralyzed or hemi-paralyzed in my case. So I, along with their direction, kind of came up with protocols and it helps increase sleep. And this is something else that other folks that have tried it out have noticed that your sleep is much deeper when you're, uh, it's just, it hasn't been proven or anything. It's just, what's the fancy word for that? It's sort of kind of reported basically it's not confirmed yet but it's the kind of obs- subjective observational or, yeah data but yeah. it's it works for me so i'm like i notice the nights when i don't passively katsu train just meaning i don't wear the bands and while i'm reading at night it affects me like i don't sleep as well and like i said other Folks that have tried it mentioned it to me. They're like, hey, do you notice that you sleep better when? I was like, I do. And that is one of the key things to me in my rehab because that was something I kind of processed. It was like, I can take control of this. I can get take care of And I can't decide, you know, make the call that I get more PT. That's the VA's call, you know, and make that happen. But I'm like, I can't control my sleep and what I put in my body eating wise and diet and nutrition so it's like that that's one of those things i took control of good sleep hygiene and the big time that they preach at btc or wave neuro is 10 to 2 a.m and that's with them doing the morning light like i do every day 7 to 11 a.m from the sun you know and if there's no sun out like days like Yesterday when it was raining here, I have a LED strip light that I turn on right behind me here. That's super bright and I just stare at it. And basically what it does is it mimics what the sunlight does. And so to go a little into the history, if you don't mind, or the medical history of it. So our body, and I have a poster that explains, I can send it to you if you'd like. And it explains the science behind it. But what happens is we receive, and I'll have my glasses off when I do it, the process, we receive that blue light. It goes into our eye, which our eyeball, our pupil is actually part of the brain. It's the only part that's exposed. It's a neuron that goes all the way to the, from the eyeball to the back of the brain. And it sends that, it receives that blue light going back to the, the point in the brain that basically is our circadian, sets our circadian rhythm for our bodies and it dates back to when we were cavemen and women and we'd go out hunting and gather in the mornings and we'd be out in the natural light nowadays we have these computers tvs and bright lights blasting our faces telling us wake up at the wrong time you know and then we wonder why we have a starbucks on every corner yeah well you're talking to a very sleep deprived audience as well and so sleep deprivation is something i talk about all the time and What's interesting, I think, with, you know, rehab, the rehab application of BFR is there's a lot of injury in the fire service as there is in the military, but there's also, sadly, quite a lot of strokes, especially in some of our older firefighters. So I've got friends who, you know, who are in their 50s that survived a stroke, but as you said, they've got that one-sided, that hemispherical um, injury. So the one side is, you know, spastic. So to think that this kind of technology could help 
in their rehab and you know maybe even just as you said relax some of that spasticity in that one side i think there's there's so much value to that so when i heard you on their podcast and their interview immediately i thought of all the applications in the first responder space including just overall sleep quality oh definitely yeah sleep is that's the number one thing anybody can do to make their health better increase and that includes weight gain and weight loss is sleep better and like that's the one if i could give any one nutritional advice or lifestyle is a word i like to use like i said i, I prefer to use that word versus diet when speaking about what i put into my body orally is like my lifestyle choices is sleep better and it's not just about quantity it's about quality and there's lots of ways of measuring it nowadays they have apps fitbit watches that you can wear that kind of track or trackers i think is what they call them right yeah yeah but you know it's interesting though because i've I've studied you know the sleep medicine world quite a bit now because i see it killing my friends you know physical disease mental health disease or mental health issues um but the uh uh the metric that they use in the sleep world is perceived tiredness so when you talk about you know the the data i mean that's that from what i understand to this day this is that's still the kind of gold standard in in sleep quality is do you feel tired or not so you know everything else we can measure in grams and meters and you know whatever but when it comes to sleep ultimately they're still using fatigue as their metric for sleep quality which i find i find is very interesting no it is and because i i sleep well every night but i still yawn quite a bit so that's not a metric to me of measuring like good sleep but you know mine is probably due because i think yawning is a lack of oxygen if i'm not mistaken i mean i'm not a doctor but i pretend to be one <laughs> well i had one one person on who talked about yawning actually deregulating the nervous system too and it was very interesting because i remember not so much now but when i was a little bit younger if I'd go into, you know, a place with a whole bunch of people I didn't know and I felt almost a little bit anxious, I would yawn. So I think it's also there's a deregulation element to yawning, too, that I think you know a lot of people don't realize. I have to look into that one. That sounds interesting because I've been trying to figure that one out for a while and I just assumed it had to be with my brain still healing. Yeah, I mean, it could be. There's this obviously, you know, many, many reasons for many things, but I found that was very interesting. And I definitely saw, you know, that, that relationship with me. So going back to the closing questions, um, the last one I like to ask before we make sure everyone knows where to find the foundation and, you know, reach out to you on social media or online. What do you do to decompress? Huh, that's a good one. I honestly, I'd have to say, it's changed, but I try to, because it's easy to say things, you know, like it's always, but then when you're in those heated moments, you know, I know the knowledge of what I should say, but it's like a lot of times go right to that instant reaction. So, you know, it's something that it's ongoing and working on, but I probably prayer would be my first go-to. And that's something, you know, they, there's different thoughts on it of how it's done because in the catholic church we pray like i pray the rosary daily and that to me is super important because it's a rhythmatic and you can tie it into neuroscience too 
rhythmatic, repetitious prayer and, you know, it puts you into your neurons into a certain state and that just calms you down. And so like, I'll just continuously pray Hail Marys and our fathers and they call it singing when you're praying the, uh, the rosary, but then you also, that's something neuroscience to it that it's like, it's beautiful because you pray and then you rhythmatically pray the Hail Marys 150 times. I think it is. And then you go into like these mysteries and you meditate on them. So you're thinking of Jesus, the life of Jesus's life. And it's really a complex, but beautiful thing to do. And I try to practice that now whenever I'm in those moments of frustration. And because that's something I think I might have mentioned with my individual PTSD is that mine has to do with my inability or ability or inability to do the things I perceive I should be able to do. And, you know, so I always use the example, too, of this. So I'm sitting, when I got home, I'm sitting, my wife helped me get onto the couch. So I can't just get up on my own off the couch like a regular person can because of my disability. I have to have assistance getting up and walking there. So she calls the family to visit to dinner, and I'm like, freaking out and i'm like i can feel this anxiety come over me and i'm like what the hell is this not a great therapist keep me cheat me about it and he's like joe that's just your ptsd so now i recognize those moments and i'm like you can use those breathing and breathing is another technique i've heard of and i understand the benefits but i just haven't figured it out yet how to do it right I guess and need, I need more practice. And that's why they call it a meditation practice, I think, is because you're never there. You're just learning. Yeah. No, absolutely. I, I, there's an app that I use called Headspace that I find incredible. Um, and again, obviously, you can do this as well as prayer because, um, you know, you, you've got your, your uh, kind of visualization and, and you, you said you're, you're, you're um, talking your way through your prayers, whether it's physically or, or internally but what this one does it's a guided meditation but they're very short very there's no woo-woo about them whatsoever you know so i think they they kind of connect a little bit more with the tactical population um but you can do anything from like a one minute breathing practice all the way through to 20 plus minute meditation sessions but there is a very very strong emphasis on breath uh, you know and it's not um, like Wim Hof for some of these very specific breathing techniques. It's more just focusing in on your breath. And I've been using it now for several, actually about over a month now consistently. I, I used it and then was very, very uh, sporadic in my practice. And just being diligent every single morning, it is absolutely incredible. Just like you were saying, that kind of monkey mind, that that anxiety, all those thoughts just bouncing around your skull, how it's just calmed everything down. And the analogy I use is, those lottery machines, you know, the little ping pong balls with the numbers on, they're bouncing around that cage. Meditation to me is like turning off the fan. Like those those things are still in there, those worries. You've still got to address those, but it's not bouncing around, you know, a thousand times an hour. Um, so, yeah, just I mean, if you've ever tried that before, but that's a great tool. I'll have to check that out. I want to say I've heard of that before, but what was it again? It's called. Sorry, that's okay. It's called Headspace. Headspace. Yeah, and I want to say they were one of the first ones around as well. So I think that they've kind of been that app before the other apps came around, if I'm not mistaken. 
Okay, I'll have to check that one out. Brilliant. Well, Joe, if people want to um, reach out to you, um, let's kind of talk about the um, United Wings of Liberty website again, you know, anywhere on, on social media, where are the best places to find you and that platform? UOL.org, our main site, like I mentioned before, UWOL.org is the best way. And my email is on there and attached to that. And uh, other links to ways get that's probably the best way to get in contact, especially any veterans that are in need of help. That's the best way. And I I wish I could put myself out there and like my business partner has to reel me in and be like, Joe, you can't put your personal cell phone number out there. I'm like, because I will. I mean, I'm like, I, you know, when I run into veterans that are really in need of help, I'm like, I'll pick up the phone for him anytime. But he's like, you can't open yourself up like that, Joe. You're going to sacrifice your own time and you know sleep and stuff like you're gonna get calls all times of the day i was like that's that's okay he's like no we won't do that until we can get you a company phone it's like all right yeah and i think that's the problem is i've seen that a lot with people have come on here who are that person just like you are you know and they do get overwhelmed and i think the the answer is that we have enough of these conversations where we can look out just for our nearest and dearest versus, you know, hundreds of people having nowhere to turn and, and reaching out to these beacons that are, you know, emerging, you know. So one day we're all looking out for each other so no one's getting overwhelmed anymore because, you know, as as we you know say in the fire service and you guys say in the military, you're looking to the man or the woman to the left and the right of you. And if we're always looking for them, you know, then no man or woman will be left behind. That's right. We're all in this together. Hundred percent. Well, Joe, I want to say thank you so much. It's been a, an amazing conversation. You know, you've got a powerful story. Oh, before I let you go, what what's the name of the book so people can look out for it? Eleven percent chance. Brilliant. And have you got a rough idea of when it's going to be out? No, but I mean, I'm really. It's something I've been working on for a long time, and. It's a process and I've just, I don't want to rush it at all. And my ultimate goal with it is like my vision is, is like, I would love to get it published. And like I said, with the nonprofit, I'm not trying to get any fun. You know, I get taken care of by the, my, from my retirement, but I, you know, do have four kids and a wife to take care of. And I'm like, and I'm living in Southern California, but that's beside the point. I'm like, my, ultimate goal would be to just be able to serve those that have served and give back with my books, you know, sales and just pump that into my nonprofit so we could grow. Because I feel like the more we grow, the more we can help. No, absolutely. Completely. So as I said, just a minute ago, I'm always in awe of people that have served and then transition out, you know, get wounded, whatever it is, and then continue to serve. I think it's completely inspiring. So I want to thank you so much for being so generous with your time today, telling your story, and I can't wait to read your book when it's out. All right. It was nice talking to you.